Hi, I'm Ilya Meritz. And I'm Andrea Bernstein. From Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music, it's Will Be Wild. So we had thought we'd be back with this episode in June. But the hearings have continued on, and so here we are now. And to help us make sense of everything that has happened, we've brought on Max Linsky. He is the executive producer of Will Be Wild. Hey, Max. Hey, guys. Hey. What an honor to get to ask you some questions about (laughs) this absolute craziness we've been watching. What an honor to be asked by you. Uh, Well, I feel like this is the natural place to start. One way of describing these hearings is that they have been wild. What have been, let's call it, the wildest moments for each of you? So there are some conceptually really wild moments, but just in terms of specific moments, for me, one of them came in the very last hearing, which was the hearing on the 187 minutes between when Trump returned to the White House and finished his speech and when he finally issued the video where he said to people, essentially, go home. And... There was a montage from basically inside the Capitol on January 6th. And as you know, I mean, I spent a lot of time with the TikTok of January 6th inside the Capitol and just looking at video and listening to audio and going over the timelines that had been issued prior to the committee hearings. So I was really deeply embedded in these moments And even with all of that, I was so shocked by how close the former vice president came to experiencing serious physical harm on January 6th. Our final episode of the regular season was called Pretty Darn Close. But not even I had realized how close. How close was 40 feet. 40 feet close. Yes. 40 feet close was how close the former vice president was to the mob. And you can hear in this montage that the committee put together his security detail radioing back and forth to each other and saying, you know, how can we get him out? First, he's in the Senate chamber and they're basically saying the rioters are coming. There's smoke. We don't know what this smoke is. We have to move. If we're going to move, we have to move now. And And also saying potential farewells to loved ones. Saying, right. So there's this sense of They're feeling, this security, the Secret Service is feeling like this could be it. And then they're like, okay, we're moving. In the middle of that incredibly fraught moment, which is just before 2.30 on the afternoon of January 6th, Trump sends out this other tweet where he says, basically, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what's right. And then the committee plays a montage of how people reacted And one of the people who reacted was Jessica Watkins, who we spent a lot of time with in this podcast, who basically said that what the president said about Mike Pence had spread like wildfire through the crowd. Hmm. So here we have this scene of Mike Pence being spirited out of the Senate chamber and into, you know, what we know now is the garage, basically, an underground garage in the Capitol, 40 feet from rioters, his security detail is terrified, and these rioters are activated to hang him per the urging of the former president. And to me, that was such a troubling scene. 
and, you know, suggested to me that, wow, we came 40 feet from serious harm or worse coming to the former vice president of the United States on January 6th. And as bad and as horrible as it was, as our producer Kat Aaron has said, this could have been an order of magnitude worse, like so much worse. And it already was terrible. We know it was terrible. Everybody who's listened to this podcast knows how horrible it was. And it was so much closer than you imagined, even after having done all this reporting. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Not even I had realized how close we were. There's something about what you just said that I want to follow up on, which is you both spent all of this time trying to figure out what had happened, trying to do this reporting. And I'm interested in what the experience was like to see some of the blanks that you couldn't fill in get filled in. For me, that takes me to the moment that I would have picked, which like the biggest terra incognita for us in this whole process, we had some insight into what was going on in the different departments, DHS or Department of Defense. We had some insight into what was happening in law enforcement and in the building. The thing that we never understood is what was happening inside the White House. And to me, that is this incredible contribution that the committee made here. So if I were to pick a moment that really kind of stood out for me. It's the night before January 6th. It's the night of January 5th. The committee teed up testimony from a bunch of people who were in the Oval Office with the president that evening, aides, press people. One of the ones that really stood out for me was from Sarah Matthews. Uh, She worked in communications, and she is sort of this bystander in this scene that makes no sense to her. When we walked in, the staff was um, kind of standing up and assembled along the wall, and the president was at the desk, uh, and Dan Scavino was on the couch, and the president was um, dictating a tweet that he wanted um, Scavino to send out. Then the president started talking about the rally the next day. Um, He had the door of um, the Oval open to the Rose Garden, because you could hear um, the crowd already assembled outside on the ellipse and they were um, playing music. And um, it was so loud that you could feel it shaking in the oval. He was in um, a very good mood. And I say that because he had not been in a good mood for weeks leading up to that. And then it seemed like he was in a fantastic mood um, that evening. There's just this awful sense of foreboding because, of course, we all know what happened the next day. And they're watching the president seem like really kind of gleeful. And it's almost like they don't quite know in that moment why he seems gleeful. But we do know now that he planned to go to the Capitol. He had that plan for several days. We don't know precisely what he thought he was going to do there, but we know it was important enough to him that he tried to yank the steering wheel away from a Secret Service officer. So for me, that moment just really stands out as indicative of who the president was being in this fraught, difficult transition period, which he made exponentially more fraught and more difficult. This is what it means to have subpoena power. Sometimes as a journalist, I use the term subpoena envy because, like, we cannot force people to talk. But the committee could. I think it might be hard for some people to appreciate the sense of, you know, let's just take Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel. Now, they did have to turn the screws on him. They had to make public appeals. But at the end of the day, he testified. He spoke. And 
really what is so extraordinary about this is that you know, Ilya and I know the backstory on Pat Cipollone, which is that during the first impeachment, he essentially declared war on Congress's attempts to get information. And he was the sort of general in the strategy of they're not allowed to talk to administration witnesses. We're not going to turn over documents. We refuse, refuse, refuse. So it is a measure of how much work the committee did when they get this man to say things like, I thought it was a terrible idea for the president to suggest that the Department of Defense sees voting machines. Why are you even asking me this is such a terrible idea? For that person to testify, it was just really kind of stunning. And I think witness after witness after witness of Trump loyalists who are some of them actively, for example, Bill Stepien, Trump's former campaign manager, currently working on the campaign to defeat Liz Cheney or at the time of the testimony, working on the campaign to defeat Liz Cheney, that they got these people to tell them what happened and to admit, we told the president there was nothing to this. We told the president that he had lost the election. We told the president there was nothing he could do. That was really sort of stunning and thrilling, and that they were able to do this a thousand times over with a thousand witnesses, many of whom we've never seen to me was I was both admiring of the process and I was like, wow, this is what when you have a functioning oversight system, this is what you can learn. Yeah. And when a president has left the Oval Office, I mean, when when we think of the first impeachment, (laughs) you know, for all the incredible witnesses that they summoned, uh, you know, we never heard from the secretary of state. We never heard from so many of the we never heard from John Bolton, from so many of the key White House people, the really inner circle people. And this it's like every single hearing they're serving you up people who saw the president every day and understood his system. It's it is wild. That is the word for it. Yeah, they were playing the hits like I feel like uh, they never let the volume get too low. It's just like again and again and another and another and another. And I, I totally understand that it was stunning and thrilling. But I don't know that listeners know how much effort you all put in to trying to get those people to talk to you. And I'm just curious, was there some, maybe this is what subpoena envy is, but was there some aspect of like, I can't believe they got all these people to talk. We tried to get all these people to talk. It's like like, uh, you were slightly in competition with the select committee. Uh, I don't really see it that way. I'm ju- I'm just happy that 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 these people went on the record. I mean, I honestly am. I, we need we need this information to be on the record for now and for posterity. And and I hope the committee is going to, you know, put the video depositions or at least the transcripts out there in full at some point because we need to see that too. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm envious that they they have those records in full because what we've gotten so far is a clip job. So we've talked about what didn't get into the show. But there's a lot that showed up in the hearings that we did get into in the show. Jessica Watkins, Danelle Harvin, there were all of these people and ideas that you guys got into Will Be Wild that the committee was talking about, too. You know, at at one point, Danelle Harvin, who's one of the voices in the first episode, he's a local D.C. former security official, appears. And his words are almost verbatim what he said to us on tape, uh, because, you know, everybody has their sort of distinctive style of telling a story. And and I'm hearing Danelle and it's like, well, if you listen to Will Be Wild, you would would know this stuff already. You (laughs) know that he got this tingle, you know, like a a few weeks before the sixth, that like something was going to happen. And that the threat streams were combining. And that the threat streams were combining. Exactly. So 
that made me feel validated. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Uh, and, and hearing Jessica Watkins presented in context mm. was chilling because that tape is chilling. This is the recording from a walkie-talkie style app. And what they did, I thought, really, really well in their media presentation is put her in the bigger context of the overall assault on the Capitol, but also what was going on in the White House at the time. They were really good at these kind of TikTok-y timelines. And what you see is a group of people where Jessica is in a leadership role who are going in to the building And they are egged on by the president and they're hanging on his every word. And we knew that, but it it came across to me so powerfully in the presentation that the committee made. You know, the biggest for me was that the first hearing picks up where we leave off in episode eight with Benny Thompson. Yeah. And a number of people have come up to me and been like, who knew Benny Thompson? It's like, well, we did know. (laughs) We did know that he was, you know, had this really interesting history and this interesting approach and a lot of things that didn't even make it into the podcast because, you know, we also, like the committee, had to make a lot of tough choices. But, you know, it's his his sense of the import of history. The import of history, right. I think nobody else brings across like him. Exactly. He has such a firm grip on the facts and such a sense of, like, focus, and I am going to keep marching along this road, and I am going to bring you with me. And you may not understand why all the way along, but eventually you will. And I feel like that, for me, was a lot of the sort of journey of the hearings for the country, is the sense of we are just going to go along, and we are going to see what Benny Thompson has to put before us. And so it actually— made perfect sense for him to have this sort of level-headed, kind of calm approach. And that, I think, is the experience of listening to episode eight, too, which is like, you just have to spend a little bit of time. you got to sit with Benny Thompson for a second, and you're not totally sure how the plane is going to land, but you just got to have some faith. That it will land. Yeah. That it will land. Yeah. And then the other thing was, you know, to see so many of the police officers, to see... You know, Mike Fanone seems to have been there every day. Officer Harry Dunn, who is still working in the Capitol, was in uniform there working during some of the hearings, which was, you know, just incredibly striking. It brought this sense of here is a thing that these people are investigating, but that also they were the victims of. Mm -hmm. And sort of seeing them all in that room together um, was striking, was striking about sort of how— sort of all these strands of history coming together and of that moment coming together. And again, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your experience because uh, I imagine that it had this sort of huge historical overtones and also felt a little bit like a, like a high school reunion for you guys. There's all, <laughs> there's all these, these old friends of yours showing up in the same room. I mean, is now the time to talk about how they used all the techniques of narrative podcast storytelling <laughs> because well i'm going to use one right now i want to ask you about some themes that showed up but first let's take a break one of the moments that i feel like was very well produced, both for a committee hearing and for a podcast, was the TikTok breakdown of what happened on December 18th. I think that was my wildest moment, was really understanding what led to that tweet that we named the show after, 
will be wild. What preceded this, like, sounds like six or seven hours before Trump sent that tweet calling for people to come to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. So let's talk about that for a second, but maybe we can we can just hear a short clip of that section. Did you believe that it was going to work, that you were going to be able to get to see the president uh, without an appointment? I had no idea. Uh, in fact, you did get to see the president without an appointment. We did. How much time did you have alone with the president? And I say alone. You had other people with you, but right. from his aides before the crowd came running. Uh, probably no more than 10 or 15 minutes. Was in that. In I bet Pat Cipollone set a new land speed record. So what we're hearing is tape uh, mostly from Sidney Powell. She was uh, she was one of these kind of rogue lawyers who kind of flocked to Trump after the election. And on December 18th, she and General Mike Flynn and a a few others get into the White House. They don't have a meeting, but they get in and they get time with the president alone. Very, very quickly, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel and, and White House staff, they find out about it and they rush there. And what follows is this like epic six-plus-hour confrontation. Uh, At times, it's just a full-on shouting match insult fest. So there's really, like, two teams in this confrontation. There's Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. I'm going to categorically describe it as you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way, you're a bunch of pussies. Excuse the expression, but that's... I'm almost certain the word was used. And General Mike Flynn and these sort of outsider people with their very wild theories about how Trump could still kind of win the day and get the election. And then there's the White House people, especially White House lawyers. Uh, Pat Cipollone, White House counsel, he's trying to tap the brakes. Eric Hirschman, another White House lawyer, is there. He gives a very vivid account of exactly how spicy it got. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely out there. I mean, you got people walk in, it was late at night, it had been a long day. And what they were proposing, I thought was nuts. Flynn screamed at me that I was a quitter and everything, kept on standing up and turning around and screaming at me. And at a certain point, I had it with him. So I yelled back, I had to come over. Or sit your effing ass back down. Another moment where even after all of the time that you all spent reporting this, it was closer than we could have imagined. Yeah. So what we see from this meeting is December 14th is a critical day because this is the day in which the Electoral College says we have voted. And uh, Biden got more electoral votes and Biden is the president. December 18th, four days later, so Trump has now exhausted all of his legal avenues, quote unquote, to overturn the election. So he starts to do these extra legal, extrajudicial things like drafting an executive order for the Department of Defense to seize voting machines and redo the election and appointing Sidney Powell, a special counsel with subpoena power to go in and investigate. I mean, what was so vivid about this moment in this hearings is there's this long, long, long montage, and we're playing a few excerpts, but I encourage people to watch the whole thing because it is 
you know, something that we like to use in podcasting, which is an, um, a non-narrated montage. And normally we can't because we don't have access to everybody. They had access to both people who worked for the White House who were, you know, like the, the, te- the team normal the kind of people who were like trying to avert a disaster. Like uh, Pat Cipollone and another White House aide named Derek Lyons. And they are screaming. They are literally, in their own words, screaming at Mike Flynn and Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. You can't do this. And um, at one point, Eric Hirschman is ready to come to blows with General Flynn. Cassidy Hutchinson is texting it to people. It moves all around the White mm-hmm. House yes. from room, yes, it to, moves room to room to room. Right. I don't understand why, but it does. Yes, and, they're, and, they're, and it's, and, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson is texting that the West Wing is unhinged, but what is so vivid is that they got so many players in the room on both sides to speak to them on the record, and they're using this tape to create this sense of forward momentum and chaos. And... At the end of the evening, Sidney Powell is saying, and and Trump are saying, they want the DOD to seize voting machines and redo the election. And they want to put Sidney Powell in this government position where she has subpoena power and is a special counsel to investigate this alleged and non-existent voting fraud. And in her mind, according to what she said to the committee, she was given the power to do this. And in Pat Cipollone's mind, she couldn't do it. But we're in this moment of, you know, kind of nobody knows what's about to happen next. Right. So uh, ends with kind of a without a conclusion. <laughs> Six hours that does not really result in a conclusion. Breaks up after midnight. And then at one forty-two and 42 seconds on the morning of December 19th, so a short time after the meeting has concluded, is when Donald Trump sends his tweet, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election big protest in D.C. on January 6th, be there, will be wild. So now we know what was going on in his mind and his life right before he sent that tweet. I actually think the committee could have done a little bit more to connect the two and help us understand how one thing informed the other. It's actually a little bit of an open question for me still. Like, was this Trump saying, I don't know. We're at a standstill with this thing. I'm not able to do what Team Flynn and Powell wants to do. So, like, let's call in the crowds. That's sort of the implication here. Uh, But it's not clear to me that that's quite what was happening. Right. Did Flynn and Powell and Giuliani and Trump and the Overstock guy, Patrick, that's his name, Patrick Patrick Byrne. Byrne. (laughs) Patrick Byrne and when he's in the Oval Office, Pat Cipollone walks in. He's like, who are you? <laughs> that's, that's one of my favorite moments of the whole thing. <laughs> and, who, who are you? Right. So what we don't know was, did they say, OK, that we've lost in the courts, the Electoral College has voted, we've got to have a rally. We have to have a rally and a protest, and we're going to actually summon a threatening mob to put pressure on vice president and on the courts and on members of Congress to overturn the election. We just don't know. There's a big, big, big question mark there. And there are some big question marks coming out of these hearings. There are things that we don't know, which allows you to project onto this, like, negative space, whatever you want. And what I hear in that moment is connected to that evening of January 5th and Trump opening the window and hearing that rally and being happy for the first time. Because I think there is a possibility that what happened is it ended in a stalemate. He didn't feel like he could do either of those things. 
everyone went home after their White House tour. And he went upstairs and said, the thing that I actually want to do is get as many people here as I possibly can, open up in the window and hear them. Yeah, I agree. And there's such a direct line from Pat Cipollone has now told him, according to his own testimony, it's over. We're done. And four days later is the moment at which Trump sends that tweet. And he's happy because everywhere else he's thwarted. He's thwarted by his Justice Department. He's, you know, Mike Pence tells him, I'm not going to do this thing you want me to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we haven't even talked about the sort of local elected officials, Trump supporters, Republicans who, you know, like Rusty Bowers from Arizona, who, according to his testimony, tells Trump directly, I will not do anything illegal for you. So in all of these ways, it's not going well for Trump, except for the big protest on January 6th. Right. He's being told by one side, you have to accept this and move on. He's being told by another side, bring in the military. He's not able to do either of those things. And I think January 6th represents some middle path that doesn't need approval from anybody and I believe that's how this starts. And it's a comfortable space for him. And if you if you look at the 2016 campaign, which began in 2015, I mean, the, the thing that people immediately noticed was these like enormous, raucous, if you were a reporter, threatening feeling rallies that were happening. And even reaching back into Trump's business career, we don't need to get into it, but he always was a master of sort of stagecraft and crowds and and liked that kind of adulation. So this is what people do when they're out of other options. They go to their comfort space. They go to the lever that they know that they can pull the best. And that, it seems, is what happened here. One of the most underrated uh, moments and pieces of testimony, I think, in the hearing was the Twitter employee who is this unnamed Twitter employee and, you know, talk about narrative techniques. There's a way you can use a disguised voice to create a set of intrigues. So we don't know who this person is. We don't know what their position is. But we know that he says, this was the moment in which Donald Trump starts directly speaking to extremists because he had a particular ask of them, come to Washington. My concern was that the former president, for seemingly the first time, was speaking directly to extremist organizations um, and giving them directives. Um, We had not seen that sort of direct communication before. Um, And that concerned me. And we know from everybody we talked to, Natalie Jangula and Guy Raffid and Daniel Rodriguez and Jessica Watkins, that that did happen. And we know from all of these other court records and things that were introduced in these select committee hearings that that exactly was an ask and that people responded. And they said, the president told us to come to Washington. It was the source of Danelle's. It gave, it gave people alarm. a focus. There were already a lot right. of really mad, upset people. It, I think it did two things. It gave them a day to focus on, but it also moved the day that people thought they were going to focus on, which was Inauguration Day, January 20th. And he said, no, I need you before then. Get moving. And the committee presented, I thought, pretty persuasive evidence that immediately some of the key event planners and some of the key groups here 
shifted their focus to I mean, change their permit dates, change their yeah. permit dates. Exactly. So, um, you know, the president said. Right. So you know, it was it. So to me, like that timeline of the Electoral College votes, Trump loses. He has this dramatic meeting in the White House. It ends in a standoff. He summons the mob to Washington. The extremists respond and start making plans and carry out their plans. And it that tweet, the will be wild tweet, is the fulcrum of all of this activity. It sets it all off. And that came into stark relief for me during these hearings. Like we were we knew that tweet was important. We knew it was important for our, you know, from our all the reporting that we did, all the people that we spoke to. But I don't think we understood how it came at this sort of pivotal moment in all of this multi-part plan that the president had, the former president had, to overturn the results of the election. I want to just say, pretty good name for a podcast in hindsight. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good name for a podcast. Turned out to be the moment. And there are some questions that we still don't know the answers to about that moment, what happened between just after midnight and 142, what exactly got decided in that meeting or didn't. Are there other big open questions from the hearing so far that are on your minds? For me, the thing that the committee has not fulfilled, they kind of promised early on, is that they were going to show, really demonstrate what the connections were between groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the White House. And I think we got a lot of interesting tidbits of evidence of phone calls involving people like Roger Stone. We got a sense that Mark Meadows was in touch with like lots and lots of people, but we just didn't get concretely what those communications were, whether there was coordination and planning. And, you know, several of the key people there are resisting the committee's efforts to get information. And the other extenuating circumstance is the Department of Justice, of course, has brought seditious conspiracy charges against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. So I think they promised a little more than they could deliver. But that is the thing that I really, really, really want to understand. Sure, President Trump knew that he was going to make January 6th the focus for, like, all of his supporters. But did he also take steps to make sure that the specific extremist groups who were known to him, who were known to his friends and allies, who beat people up on the streets of Washington, D.C. in the months of November and December— Did he specifically want them there and take steps to get them there is just an unanswered question. So on the on the spectrum from chaos to coordination, we still don't totally know where this fell. I would argue that with the sort of Twitter employees evaluation of the effect that that tweet had and all the other evidence about the effect that that tweet had, we do know that the president spoke to extremists. We do know he said, come to Washington. He did it in the form of a tweet, but that was his mode of communication. So it's unknown if he picked up a phone or picked up somebody else's phone, which was a habit of his, or asked somebody to make some communication on his behalf about that. But we know he communicated. And we also know something extraordinary, which is that at the time he said, we're going to march to the Capitol and I'll be there with you. Not only was that his intention, but that he had been told the crowd is armed. The crowd has pepper spray, body armor, flagpoles with spears. And his response was not, 
uh, you know, that's terrible or whatever. His response is, let him into my rally because I want a bigger crowd and then we'll send him to the Capitol. Right. So, and t- t- take away the middle detectors. <laughs> and they're not here to hurt me. They're not here to hurt me. I mean, I think that I completely agree. I think this is the point at which the committee didn't deliver. They sort of put pieces of information in the public record that didn't all add up. But I do think that based on the evidence that they did present, there is a sense of a plan emerging of, you know, Giuliani saying on January 2nd to Cassidy Hutchinson, we're going to march to the Capitol and it's going to be a great day for the president. Of Mark Meadows sort of sitting on his phone, checked out when Cassidy Hutchinson is trying to talk to him. And on the day, January 6th, locking her out of his vehicle, not allowing her to come in and brief him. So <laughs> right. she's, she's, right? she's like knocking on the window or the door and she's just like, <laughs> I have to tell the chief of staff that um, there's a violent mob attacking the Capitol. And he's like, I can't talk right I now. I can't talk. So who is he talking to? <laughs> so we see the sense of like, what? Yes. What? Exactly. What? But, but you're pointing again to another unanswered question, which is what were they going to do when the president got to the Capitol? What, right. did, what did the president think that he was going to do? I have we don't know. no idea. Right. They did, right. they haven't even dropped a breadcrumb there. Right. Um, did did the president want it to be a violent thing, or would he have been content with um, just a humongous show of force? Right. Just a delay. I a mean, delay. Right. Every, exactly. Well, we, there is a lot of evidence of delay at this point. I mean, we certainly right. know the president was trying to have that vote not take place. That's right, and, and, and communications with senators and right. all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, but. To the sense of an emergence of a plot, I mean, there's also all of this intrigue surrounding, uh, you know, the president spoke with Steve Bannon twice on January 5th. Then, then the Steve president Bannon went wanted, on the radio and said it's going right. to be crazy. Yeah. Yes. And then all hell will break loose. All, right. Exactly. And then the president, per Cassidy Hutchinson, saying to Mark Meadows, you must speak to Roger Stone and General Mike Flynn on January 5th. And then... Mark Meadows trying to get Cassidy Hutchinson to send him over to the Willard Hotel where all of these sort of rogue actors are gathered and really wanting to go in the night of January 5th. And she will not send him there because she says she knew what was being planned at this point. She didn't want the chief of staff from the White House to be there. So he says, according to her, OK, I'll dial in. So <laughs> there's an awful lot we don't know. But I think we understand that there was certainly a lot of, uh, you know, communications and speaking and You know, the committee says it's not done. And I hope that as we go on, there is more that we learn about this. I don't know. I have some questions about where we're going and what happens next. But there's one thing that just happened, which has to do with one of the central characters of the show. And Ilya, I'm hoping you can just give us an update on what's happened with Guy Reffin. Yes, Guy Reffitt was sentenced to a little over seven years in prison by the judge in his case on August 1st, and it was a really eventful day. I was not in the courtroom, but I was glued to Twitter watching some of the reporters who were there. And basically what was happening is the government was arguing for a 15-year sentence with a pretty significant enhancement for terrorism. Hmm. Uh, There's not a domestic terrorism law, but in sentencing, the government prosecutors can request a terrorism enhancement. And they were basically arguing that Refit was a really pivotal 
character in all of this, because he pre-planned going to D.C., because he brought a weapon, because he circulated at the Stop the Steal rally, telling people again and again that he was going to drag Nancy Pelosi out by the ankles, and then climbing the steps and motioning people up towards the door that led to the Senate. For all of those reasons, they said Guy Reffitt is effectively a domestic terrorist and needs to get a very harsh sentence for deterrence purposes in particular. The judge entertained that motion, but she did not agree. She gave him actually a slightly lighter sentence than the guidelines would have called for. And two really interesting things happened to me. One is that Guy Reffitt was not going to make a statement to the court. They took a little lunch break and he's like, no, actually, I will say something. And he basically apologized profusely, said, yes, I broke the law, and like, please give me a chance. I need to make things good with my family. The judge said she didn't really believe his expressions of remorse fully coming as they did at the 11th hour and 45 seconds. But she seems to have given some value to that. But also, our reporting was cited by prosecutors in their sentencing memo, and the judge mentioned it, two pieces of the reporting specifically. One was Guy's history of, you know, I think what we can fairly call domestic violence, holding a a gun to Nicole's head on more than one occasion. And then also Guy's lack of remorse, which he had expressed to me in his emails, Mm -hmm. where he, even after being convicted, he kept talking about how 1-6 was basically an inside job instigated by the cops, and, and his only regret really seemed to be for the pain and, and harm that was caused to his family, but not recognizing the harm that he caused to our country by attacking the Capitol in the way that he did. So it's sort of a strange moment to sort of see your work kind of reflected back in a court of law that I don't think that's really happened before in my reporting life. But you know, now guy's going to go to a federal prison. He'll be taken out of the Patriot wing. And I know that his family is hoping to be able to visit him, which is something that they haven't been able to do until now. You know, one other thing happened outside the courtroom right afterwards that really kind of gave me chills, which was Sarah and Peyton, uh, Guy's youngest daughter, went in front of the cameras. And Sarah's talking and saying, it's, you know, it seems kind of wrong that, um, you know, my father's getting the sentence and and you know, a guy who kind of instigated this whole thing, like, might run for president again and win. And then Peyton jumps in. And Peyton's the only refit who I never spoke with. Hmm. Peyton is the youngest. Um, and I think there was a sense that the family kind of wanted to protect her. And she speaks up and she says, Trump deserves life in prison if my father's in prison for this long. Like, just categorically, like, wow. all steel. And she, she actually really reminds me of her brother Jackson. She looks like him and she kind of brings this, like, strong force of conviction across that that I always got from Jackson. Your last words of the podcast were about the Reffitt family and about them reconciling. Yeah. And you said, I hope they can. Yeah. In some sense, the Reffitt family struggle is the struggle of this divided country. And I'm wondering where you feel on that, on the Reffitt family. You know, I I still message with them. I kind of gave them a little bit of birth this week because uh, I think they're getting a lot of media attention this week. I, I will check in with them in a little while and just sort of see how they're doing. I think having a conclusion about, like, where Guy's going to be and when he's going to get out creates the conditions where they can start to have those conversations. And now we know how old everyone will be and roughly where they will be in their lives seven-plus years from now. 
when Guy gets out. Um, so that, that, that really gives them some space to, to try to figure stuff out. One of the things that's so different from now and when we recorded episode eight pretty darn close is I think that what we understand now is the committee talked about a seven-part plan to overthrow the government. And what we know pretty clearly is that Trump directed at least six of those, which had to do with the fake electors and pressuring Mike Pence and disinformation that he was in charge of that. I mean, what we now know is that basically his entire campaign team and his entire White House team went to him and said, the election is over, you lost. Don't say otherwise. And he did say otherwise. So just with this one example, and he said it will have bad consequences for the country if you say otherwise. And he does it. He overrules everybody. So I think that what has emerged from these committee hearings is this sense of Trump really directing and commanding and telling people and calling local elected officials and organizing the fake elector plans. I mean, we see him at the center of every one of these dramas. The only one that is a question is this question of to what extent did he direct and organize the mob on January 6th? He certainly was incredibly enthusiastic about it, encouraged it, summoned it, abetted it, didn't stop it. But you know, there are still questions that we have, as we've said. So I think in light of the fact that we've learned this about Trump, what Peyton Reffitt says really resonates. He did all of these things, and the people like Guy Reffitt and Danny Rodriguez and Jessica Watkins were in some ways the sort of bodies that he had carry out these acts. They are all of them in jail or prison. And Trump is, as we record this, in Mar-a-Lago, playing yeah, golf or, or, and planning another campaign for president. So this sense of where is the justice, I think, is really thrown into sharp relief by these hearings. Yeah. Let's say three of the four people who love Guy Reffitt and his nuclear family, I think, blame Trump. And that's Jackson, Sarah, and Peyton. I, I'm not sure about Nicole, but I think a lot of families of insurrectionists are going to be asking themselves, who do I blame here? Um, something that really, really jumped out at me in the government's sentencing memo was this idea of deterrence. And they were really arguing for a harsh penalty on the grounds of deterrence. This quote, this was not a protest, and it is important to convey to future rioters and would-be mob participants that their actions will have consequences. This is especially true for leaders and planners like Refit. There's possibly no greater factor that this court must consider. Hmm. And to me, that points the finger back at Trump as well, I don't know if prosecutors intended that, but de you know, deterring an individual rioter is one thing. Deterring political leaders, you know, which the founders were always so concerned with, from inciting mobs and breaking the system for their own benefit—that's a necessary part of deterrence, I would argue. And gets at that same central question to which we don't totally have the answer, which is: to what degree was that? coordinated and organized. But there are uh, some big questions that are still hanging out there. So 
One I have for you is uh, what do you expect to happen at the remaining hearings? What are you looking for? What do you hope happens? What do you think will happen? I hope we learn more about that central question that we still have, sort of the, you know, what was Trump's involvement or knowledge of the planning of the violent mob? I mean, I want to be really careful because I think what we've already learned is so shocking. You know, I don't want it to be like the Mueller investigation where people are like, I'm not going to be satisfied unless I uh, hear a recording of, you know, Putin and Trump speaking in Russian. (laughs) And I think, like, we can look for too much. Like, what's in front of us is already an extremely indicting and instructive in a negative way. Like, we don't want this to happen in a democracy. This is the road to autocracy. It is clear. And Trump actively pushed it and was really at the center of it. We know that now. But I'd still like to know. I'd like to know more about what were those phone calls, what were those communications, what were those discussions between those sort of rogue players and Trump, especially in the final days before January 6th. And we may yet learn it. There are going to be more hearings in September, Benny Thompson has said. There's going to be a final report. There's going to be an interim report, which may or may not shed more light on what happened with the National Guard. Well, I want to talk about that because I think the thing that we haven't really seen so far from the committee where they haven't really showed their work is what was going on inside the agencies and the other parts of government that were not the White House. So the National Guard is a huge question. Why did it take three hours to get the Guard to the Capitol? We don't know, but maybe the committee knows. We're hearing they may release an interim report, which will get some answers on that and also talk about what role the president did or did not play that day communicating with defense leaders. I think he played no role communicating with defense leaders is the indication we've had so far. You know, beyond that, I'm thinking back to episode three, which Andrea led on the Department of Homeland Security, where we saw the the rot that had happened inside these agencies where dedicated professionals were undermined again and again and again until they really lost faith uh, or lost simply the ability to deal with our country's problems. My understanding is that the committee is examining the work of agencies, and they probably will never hold hearings on it, would be my guess, or not a lot. I don't think they're going to make it a focus the way they've focused on Trump. But when that final report comes out at the end of the year, I'm going to be reading that section really, really closely, and I think we all should. Do you have a sense of what the impact of these hearings will be on those agencies, on DOJ, DHS? How is this going to change the way that the government works? I think people people inside those agencies, I think this is Andrea's experience as well, have felt really sort of not heard and not noticed kind of the trauma that they kind of lived through in the Trump years of seeing the expected order be turned upside down. I heard about this a little bit from General Mike Tahiri when he was talking about kind of working in the Pentagon under Trump. And so I think it could be a real relief to people who believe in the mission of their agency and see it all laid out, how things have been broken. It's, I suppose, up to agency leaders and up to Congress if they want to try to fix those things. I don't know if there's like a lot of specific remedies that you can write for this kind of problem because, you know, this is the problem we always talk about of a lawless president. Once you have a lawless president, you you can't really design a perfect system for that. Yes. And I think that is one of the tragedies that really the committee did not get into. But this sense of Trump 
broke the government, that he hollowed it out. And, you know, we said in episode three that a change in administration does not fix it, does not automatically fix it. And I think we are seeing that. I don't think that simply, you know, having these hearings fixes that. I think that it has to be, it's sort of much more of a kind of a longer term project of rebuilding democracy. And that's where the government is, is that you have these sort of institutionalists trying to grapple with the wreckage left by people whose entire goal was to destroy institutions. So um, there is a lot of work to be done. The signs I see are that the current leadership believes in rebuilding. I just don't think it's a very easy thing, and I don't think it can happen in, you know, four years or eight years. I want to finish up by asking about some ideas that are in the last episode. And one of those is, how are we going to remember January 6th? How is this going to be memorialized? And I wonder, given the point we are in the hearings now, how you think these hearings have impacted the narrative of that day and how the country's going to remember it? Uh, I don't know what data points to pull from. I haven't really looked at the polling. But it seems to me the hearings are breaking through. I'm stunned by the lack of an effective counter-narrative from the president's supporters that is really kind of punching through. I think that's from the quality of the witnesses and the quality of the presentation. So I do think that what the committee has successfully done is put the president at the center of all of these efforts. I think going into the hearings, I didn't have a sense that the prime driver of all of these pressure campaigns was Trump. Trump is just relentless at this point. He's he's the dog with the bone. He is like the child that won't let, get, let go of its toy. I mean, he is pushing, 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 relentlessly pushing. I think that may be one place where the public's understanding really did get kind of shifted. When our podcast started dropping, the overwhelming response was, oh, I had no idea there was more to learn. I had no idea that there were all these things I didn't know because I thought I saw it on TV. And the experience of the hearings was, you know, sort of a thousand times over, like so many times, like we didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't know. So I do think that what the committee has done is one of the things we talked about in episode eight was the sense of service to history and memory. We know these things now. We have these witness testimonies. Ilya, you were talking about a counter-narrative from Trump supporters, but these this testimony is from Trump supporters. Almost everybody who testified was a Republican, many of them still actively supporting President Trump or his ideas in some way. So this history that we know is this history according to them. And to me, that is really astounding that we have this in the record, that this story has been told, that it is not lost to history. And the thing that Mike Fanone was talking about, I want a memorial. I feel in some ways these hearings are a memorial because they are, this is the story. We are telling this story. We are putting it out there. So that is refreshing and a service to history and something that I've almost never seen in government, this incredible sort of sense of commitment to uh, bringing out the truth. I think that, you know, 
weighing over me still is a sense that sort of what is going to happen in the courts, and we still don't know. I don't feel that the entire sort of justice and memory of this depends on that, but I also feel Peyton Reffitt's words ringing in my head and the sense of where is the justice for Trump? You know, the the next time they hold a live hearing, Liz Cheney may be on her way out of Washington. Um, So I'm thinking about that, too. Adam Kinzinger already is the the other Republican on the committee. I do think that one aspect of what made this feel distinct was that it wasn't just about the truth, but that they decided quite consciously to tell a story. And that felt different to me. Like, the, the emphasis on the, like, narrative and production felt really new to me. And I, I do think it was in the spirit of trying to have it break through and to try and have it be a version of memory. It wasn't just facts. I mean, these people had watched two impeachments. They'd watched the Mueller report, countless attempts to hold Trump to account. And I think they learned their lessons and found advantages in the structure that had been set up. It was so striking to me, and we were talking about this before we recorded this conversation, they're using, like, all the techniques of narrative podcasting. I mean, I just want to say this, right? Like, leaning into the story, really kind of, like, emotionally resonant, detail-rich, juicy, you know, laying out, like, the bonbons every few minutes. There's, like, a kind of a wow moment, giving sort of, like, a roadmap at the beginning, which we often do in podcasts, and then trying to end on a cliffhanger. And Liz Cheney supplied a lot of cliffhangers. Totally. <laughs> every episode was sort of next time on the yeah. select committee hearing. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be hearing this. Straight straight montage and, to get you to hit play on the next you one. You know, I, I, I mean, the story that they wanted to tell was a story about former President Trump. So all these other things that sort of interested us, radicalization, the hollowing out of government, all of these ways in which, you know, sort of Trump damaged democracy, they didn't necessarily focus on because those are, you know, complicated, hard stories to tell, as we know. And they wanted to have this simple narrative of Trump was at the center of this seven-part plan directing it. And... Um, you know, as we've said, they weren't perfect. There were definitely hearings where they shoehorned in witness testimony that didn't exactly fit in. Some of them went on for a while. But on the whole, they, um, you know, they interviewed a thousand witnesses and we saw like maybe 20 live witnesses. I don't know how many we saw in total, but I would be surprised if it was more than 50. And they were, we are focusing on these characters that you can connect to, that you can carry on from one episode to the next, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson and uh, Pat Cipollone and et cetera, et cetera. Bill Barr. Bill Barr. Was who, a big... who, what, who knew he was going to emerge as a character <laughs> so, in that way? Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's what they did. They picked the characters. They told the story. And I think, you know, anecdotally, I feel like people are getting their heads around the facts of what happened. Well, it also feels really significant to me that the two of you who have probably thought more than anyone else on Earth about how you tell the story of January 6th have very few, like, edit notes for them. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I, think, I think that yeah. says a lot. Yeah. I got one last question for you guys, and then we'll, we'll end this bonus episode. And this will be the last bonus episode. So this is a real end to the Will Be Wild experience. But where episode eight ends is both of you, and there's a gap there, talking about how hopeful you are for what comes next. And I wonder if at this point with these hearings, that's changed for either of you. 
think in the instant, I am more hopeful, but if I take a step back, I am not more hopeful about the place our country is going. I think all the underlying conditions are as they were when we recorded that episode. I mean, I think that I feel more hope in the sense that I feel like this story is out there in this big way and that can never be undone. And to me, that is a momentous and potentially hopeful sign. But I do think I should address, you know, what feeling hope means for me, which is not like thinking like everything's going to turn out well, but feeling like despite how terrible things are, that you have to believe in the possibility of an alternative. Whether you think that is actually going to happen, I feel the jury is still out, but I still believe that there is a, you know, sort of possibility that the sort of negative path that we're on can turn out differently. And so in that sense, I do still have hope. I mean, seeing an effective accountability process, which I think is what this already is, I think we can say that, is great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That feels good. Andrea, Ilya, thank you for guiding us through these hearings, and thank you for the podcast. Back at you, Max. Thank you, Max. It was really fun. Will Be Wild is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. It's hosted by me, Ilya Meritz, and Andrea Bernstein. Our senior producer is Kat Aaron. Our producer for this episode is Justine Daum. Thanks to Maria Robbins-Somerville and Ari Saperstein. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Fact-checking by Jane Drinkard. Our sound designer is Hannes Brown, who also composed the original music. Pineapple's head of engineering is Raj Makija. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Legal review also provided by Katie Ali Mahamadi Crown and Sarah Schwartzman at Donaldson Califf Perez. Jenna Weiss Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street, with support on Will Be Wild from Maddie Sprung Kaiser. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our managing producer is Candace Manriquez Wren. Senior producer is Eliza Mills, and executive producers are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. <laughs>